Welcome to another edition of Practitioner Radio, Pink Elephant's podcast for the IT management community. Welcome to Practitioner Radio, Episode 6. Hey everyone, it's Chris Dancy. I'm here with my favorite Practitioner Radio host. Troy Dumoulin. Troy, there's a disturbance in the force. I feel that there's an extra presence, a ghostly something from beyond. Do you know what I'm talking about? I think I do. I think there is a Jack Probst presence lurking around here. Hey guys, how you doing? Wow. Two legends on the same podcast. So Jack, you might not know it, but uh, Practitioner Radio has a fanatical following. People have said things like they've taken weeks of class, weeks of training, and they've learned more from a 30-minute session with me playing the dumb guy, which is real easy, and Troy playing the smart guy, which is real easy for Troy, than they have in all of that training. Are, are you up for this challenge? Oh, I am. I'm just trying to figure out between the dumb guy and the smart guy, where am I going to fall? Oh, somewhere somewhere in the middle. Pick, this, pick that point in the middle, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So I think this is an interesting practitioner radio, Troy, because, Troy, we've spent so much time going through. We did change, release, SLAs. Um, I can't even think of all the things we've done. But, Troy, you wanted to tackle a new topic today. you want to tell us a little bit about your thoughts behind what we're doing? Well, yeah, absolutely. This is a, an opportunity that I didn't want to pass up. Uh, Jack, uh, I'll let him tell you a bit more about this, has a very special position in the uh, ISO 20,000 development cycle. And he's got an interesting event in Paris coming up that he might want to tell us about as well. And there's a, a recent announcement that the 20,000 code of practice, actually the specification to be more accurate, is coming out in April. So there's a lot of things happening in the 20K space. And I thought, hey, what a better time to bring Jack on to tell us about what's happening and why 20K is important. I'm excited because every place I look for the last 18 months, I see ISO or ISO 20,000. Everyone seems to be talking about it. I have my usual list of stupid questions. I've read uh, Troy's blog. We'll put a link in the show notes about ISO 20,000. Jack, before we get started, I have one question for you. Is it like a bad form to say ISO 20,000 or is it, or are you supposed to say ISO 20,000? I know it's kind of a silly question, but I don't know which one to say. So if you're going to be uh, correct from a standards perspective, yes, what you would say is ISO IEC 20,000. Uh, although you do hear people refer to it as 20K or ISO 20,000, but the people who work in the standard setting process, they refer to it as ISO IEC because it's the combination of the two standards bodies that approve uh or combined to prove the standards. Right. I've got to ask, Jack, do they always spell it out, iOS, ISO, IEC 20,000, whenever they say it? Yeah, and they even add a little slash in between there. So, yeah, they do. That must make conversations go pretty long. Oh, it does. You, and you got to tell you, when you uh, two things you don't ever want to see made, sausage and standards. And uh, <laughs> it does make for a fun and frivolity when you get standards people together. Sausage and standards, that'll be the name of the show. So, um, ISO... Uh, dash IEC. Well, I can, I'm, I'm going to have to be inappropriate the whole time and just say ISO. Uh, but it's good to know. So IEC versus ISO, you said there are two different bodies. Before we get into the 20,000, maybe we should just understand what the difference is and how many standards bodies are there. So the original standards body was the International Organization for Standards that was started in the 30s. 
And this particular organization was focused on <clears throat> developing standards for broad use around the globe. Uh, one of the challenges with the standard setting process was that there was a U.S.-based um, organization, which was the um, International, or let me think about this for a second. It was the uh, International Electrotechnical Committee, which was a uh, had a focus on technologies. And because there was an overlap between the various uh, standards that were being established by both groups, there was a decision made by both ISO and IEC to join up and form uh, joint technical committees or JTCs so uh, they could eliminate the um, this this overlap of uh, of the, the various standard setting groups. So uh, so that's the reason why you hear ISO IEC. Um, and then um, as well, and just one other thing to, to throw into the mix, <clears throat> at the ISO level, there's various national groups or national bodies that are part of the ISO standard setting process. So within the U.S., we have a standard setting body known as ANSI or the American National Standards Institute. And ANSI is the group that uh, coordinates and uh, um, distributes to back to ISO uh, the U.S. position relative to inter- any of the uh, standards activities. That's amazing. So back in my old, 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 old job when I was on a help desk, and we had to like set up terminals for the Unix server. We'd always like pick ANSI standard as how the terminal emulated. So that's actually a part of this whole ISO piece. Could be again, ANSI is the national body, but also ANSI will establish its own standards for use within the U.S. So more than likely, you were using ANSI standards that may or may not have been aligned to the ISO standards. Wow, it's alphabetic soup. Yeah, maybe we should just come up with our own standards bodies and hope that someday they'll be talking about Jack, Troy, and Chris. So let's see. No, I don't know. The acronyms wouldn't float. No, they wouldn't. Yeah, that, that would. Did, well, you'd have the JTC. So. Um. <laughs> Um, so that's that's really good. But now, now that because there are some people, I'm sure, like me, who thought, "What is all this standard stuff talking about?" So one last generalized standards question. I've I've read information about uh, ISO um, uh, nine thousand and twenty six. So all these standards are part of the same body, right? They're not separate branches. They just might have separate governing groups, that sort of thing. Exactly. So there's within uh, within the ISO um, committee structure. Um, you have the Joint Technical Committee, so JTC1, and then um, there's various uh, subcommittees that will focus on various groups of standards. So in the case of um, ISO IEC 20000, we're part of a uh, subcommittee known as Systems and Software Engineering. Um, and so that particular group um, has various working groups that will focus on the development of standards and ISO 9000 and 9000 series would be uh, organized under a different group. Troy, did you know all this? I actually did because I've had to uh, talk to Jack about this. In fact, I had to approve a trip he's got coming up to uh, the International Standards Body Convention in Paris in a couple of weeks. I don't know. I'd approve anything he wanted at this point. He just knows way too much. Um <laughs> Jack, so with ISO uh, 20,000 now, now that we understand uh, how we got here, what the standards board's all about, you're going to share with us your your insider knowledge. Maybe we shouldn't even say that. I'll get some in trouble. Uh, f- before we get that far, one last 
Jack question. This is for Jack. How did you get picked personally? Do you have to apply or do they just like you? Do you know someone? So that's a great question. So this started, gosh, Troy, probably a couple of years ago. Yeah, it did. And we heard of an effort uh, underway to develop um, a process assessment standard using ISO 20000 as a base. Um, we now know that as what will eventually become part eight of the ISO 20000 standard series. And we knew that the work was emanating out of Australia. Um, so I talked to Troy about it. We, uh, I, I made a couple of phone calls to uh, some of my buddies that I knew that were involved in, uh, in the ISO activities. And um, after some research and the like, uh, we got in touch with the right people, especially uh, those that were involved with the technical advisory group at the U.S. level, which is called the TAG. Um, asked them uh, how we could get involved and what we could do. And uh, part of the process is that the organization, not Jack Probst, but Pink Elephant, becomes a member of um, the technical advisory group um, under the uh, subcommittee seven. And so uh, a year ago, we um, uh, actually probably a, a year and a half ago, we applied for membership. Uh, we met the basic requirements that were needed in order to become a voting member and uh, you ante up your your uh, membership fees and lo and behold, you're a member. So that was the start of the process. And I've been uh, attending tag meetings twice a year uh, to talk with other uh uh, task group members about the work that's going on within uh, their particular areas of interest. We form the U.S. position at the TAG meetings, and then those are forwarded on for voting in action at uh, the two international meetings that are held uh, annually. Troy uh, alluded to one, which is going to be held in Paris in May, which is called the plenary meeting. And uh, it will be at that meeting that uh, ISO Working groups will uh, bring forward their uh, recommendations as respects various uh, standards changes and will work through any any issues and then vote on those standards changes. And that happens in both May and November. Now, now Jack, you're being humble. Chris, he actually is leading the uh, technical advisor group in the States as well. Wow. So that's quite a privileged position. Wow. Yeah, that's why you know I, I you know I, I don't know Jack very well. I don't. I just know one thing: just don't don't get don't get Jack mad and don't question him. So uh, <laughs> you're just so you're just so darn smart. Author, uh, technical advisory board winner. Okay, enough of this stuff. Let's get down to brass tacks. So ISO or ISO twenty thousand. Uh, I see all over the internet. Everyone's now offering classes on ISO twenty thousand. And I think the first thing that some of the listeners out there might struggle with is who is a class for ISO 20,000 geared to and what is their expected outcome? So I sent my entire team to it because um, I was kind of the impression I had something to do with auditing your business, not learning what you should tell your business to do. So help clear me up. So um, from a personal certification standpoint, um, there's two certifications that um, that you can seek, uh, and it's two streams. So one is as a consultant, and the other one is as as an auditor. Um, so on the consultant side, there's various classes that you can uh, you can take and pass uh, the exams. There, um, these exams are um, under the auspices of various uh, 
organizations um, such as APMG uh, and others, uh, I believe Exxon and Loyalist and, and the like all have exams in this space. And so you take a class and then you can take the exam and you receive your certificate. Um, all cert- certificates leading up to a consultant designation, um, which with that consultant designation, you indicate that you have a good, strong working knowledge with respect to the ISO standard, and you can advise organizations to prepare for their certification audit. And that's the second stream. So there's another stream uh, for certification of individuals who um, will then serve as auditors, if you will, of organizations who are seeking ISO 20,000. Those auditors are under various schemes that are um, uh, developed uh, by, again, various organizations in, uh, around the world. And, and each country seems to have their own uh, scheme or um, organizing body that develops their certification process. And so once you've passed and you've been certified that you're an auditor, then you can go on site and evaluate an organization for their certification as to ISO 20,000. And so there's both an individual certification as well as an organizational certification. And part of the individual certification is leading to um, the requirements that are necessary in order to go on site and certify an organization. Wow. So I'm always looking for the angle, the scheme. Um, If I work for... ABC, an enterprise global company, and I want to uh, have my organization be ISO 20,000. Uh, uh, what would be the term? Official, audited, certified? What's the term? Certified. Certified. Yeah. Um, are there rules governing sending my lead technical person to a consulting class and having them become an auditor and doing doing that to our own business? Um, actually, you can't do that. So there's regional certification bodies or RCBs that are accountable for the, the certification process. And these are independent bodies that um, are contracted for by the, uh, the organization seeking certification. So you, it would be a little bit of the fox guarding the hen house for the organization to attempt to certify itself. So, no, that wouldn't be a possible. Okay, well, that's good. I was kind of worried. And then does the organization get a certificate or do they get a great big lapel pin? That <laughs> What does the organization get? Well, the organization is certified, so um, they do get notice of certification that comes after they've dealt with uh, any discrepancies as it relates to the, certifi- the, uh, the standard itself. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then every three years they have to be recertified uh, but also in the interim between those three-year certifications, there also is um, more or less a recheck uh, or um, sort of a mini audit of the uh, uh, of the current status of their compliance with the standards. So uh, it's not a one and done. You're certified and then you're reevaluated on a regular basis. It kind of reminds me of when I was 16 and I took my driving test. I thought to myself, who is this guy? to tell me I'm a good driver, you know, who tested him first to be a driving test instructor and then who actually taught him to drive. So is that kind of like the difference between the consultant, the auditor, and then me, the person wanting to get the certification? Yeah, exactly. So you wouldn't have your your um, driving instructor. Be your dad. That wouldn't be the person working <laughs> for the state licensing bureau. So, yeah, that's the distinction between the two. Interesting. Troy, can we have Jack on every week? 
Well, you know, that could be, but he's got to be busy out there making money too. So yeah, that's true. You know, he's one of our most sought after consultants. He's, yeah. he, he finds a way to get himself uh, into long-term engagements with our clients. Very good, very positive thing, but it makes it hard to make him a regular guest on practitioner radio. Now that I understand the organization gets a certificate, they go through a three-year cycle to get recertified. You've got many checkups in, in the beginning. Let's get down to some of the foundation behind this. Because a lot of people confuse, well, I confuse ISO 20,000 and ITIL, and I use them interchangeably because, to be honest with you, I don't have time to care. Let's start with the organization where we go back to the, the auditor and the consultant. An organization would seek ISO 20,000 certification for the goal of, not the certification, but there's some intangible reason they would want it. What are the things that an ISO 20,000 organization exhibits? Uh, is it a governance thing? Is it, a, a, is it like a Sarbanes-Oxley thing? Or why would they want it? So at, at the base level, the organization will seek out the ISO 20,000 certification to prove that they are delivering services in a quality manner to their customers or the business. So at, at the, the, the philosophical level, that would be why the organization would, uh, would seek it, although it's a rather expensive process to, to go through to, to prove to your internal customers that you're, um, you're well-vetted and well-qualified to deliver the, uh, the services you do to them. The, probably the more common reason that you see organizations seeking the ISO 20,000 certification is because uh, they're in a business such as a managed, managed services business where they're um, being asked by their potential customers to prove their mettle as respects service delivery. And um, there's, it's not uncommon to see in RFP requirements, especially, for instance, for the U.S. federal government, that uh, managed service providers will be asked to carry an ISO 20000 certification. Um, so, so that's in many cases that's that's the reason why organizations will will seek it out. Um, it's also just as has been the case, for instance, with the capability maturity model integrated. Uh, certifications that uh, uh, spun from uh, the Software Engineering Institute or SCI back in the 70s. Um, it also provides uh, the means by which you can uh, say that I am very good at what I do and uh, you potentially be sort of a marketing piece for you to say, hey, I'm ISO 20,000 certified. You ought to listen to us or maybe uh, – if individuals are out there Googling for organizations, they want to find providers that could could help them out. They may be looking for these 20,000 certifications because they believe there's there's quite a bit of substance behind uh, the, the procedures and practices that uh, that particular organization uh, meets and can deliver. As someone on the inside, you said uh, just now uh, that they believe it, it, it delivers substance and value. You're on the inside. Wouldn't Would you say that it, it does deliver substance and value? Well, you know, it's it's like any of the, the standards. It's one that you are proving that you can meet the the uh, the tenets of the standard itself. I mean, it's a very rigorous process to go through the certification. But um, let's face it, as we know in the, the business that we do um, and the work that we perform as consultants with, with our clients, it's also – um, how well and how effective you are in delivering these processes 
and the management systems and the like. So yes, this creates a great foundation. You should be able to deliver high quality services, but let's face it, all the pieces, parts have to come together and meet ultimately the needs of the business. So this gives you a great lens into the organization, but there's also those intangibles that are uh, really needed in order to deliver uh, benefit to the customer. So um, this gets you a good way there, but it all has to come together uh, at the right time and at the right place in order to uh, create that value for the business. Hey Chris, I have an angle for you. You're always looking for angles. Just another another whole view of this that hasn't really have to do with auditing and getting certifications. The uh, you know because you could argue, well, I'm not really after the audit. I'm not really after certification. So what is what does ISO have to give me? What is it? What's benefit to my organization? Can I look from uh, the certification side of things? You actually can take a look at ISO 20,000 as a means by defining governance requirements in your own process design. Uh, take a look at the, like, the concept of a minimum code of practice. So, so whoa, 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 whoa. Troy, uh, I want to slow down here because if I'm confused, I'm sure other people are. You said it could be used as an angle to help when designing your own internal processes because it gives you a better understanding of how to build process? I mean, can you slow that, pull that apart a little bit for me? I certainly can. Okay, for the concept of designing processes and for the concept of having a governance measuring stick, an internal governance measuring stick to see if that process is fit for purpose, one of the things that the ISO standard does give us is a minimum specification, which is, think of it as the minimum requirements for a healthy process that will meet the objective and the goal of that process. And one thing that ISO gives us is that code, if you will, that says a process that looks at service level management should cover these things. And actually, it says shall cover these things, right? It must. A process that looks at configuration management shall cover these minimum requirements. So it's almost like an acid test for your own process design to say, when I've designed this, have I kept the minimum requirements in place? Do I meet the the basic elements that this will require to achieve its goal? That's an interesting checklist if you want to validate your design. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's, it's very complementary to what we normally do or talk about on the podcast. Absolutely. I have an analogy I like to use. I like stories and uh, the one I use when talking about the difference between ITIL and ISO 20000 as the code is uh, I use the concept of an electrician or electrical engineer, if you will. So you you have a desire to become an electrical engineer. You go to school for years on uh, the various subject matter related to electrical engineering. But one of the courses you have to take as part of your complementary course load is also the code, the electrical code. Because if you're going to design a new system... You have to know the minimum requirements that that design will require. So it's good to take your ITIL classes. It gives you the broader understanding from foundation right up to the master level. But it's somewhere at that you know, educational path. You're going to have to take a peek at the code. What's the minimum requirements for service management? And that's where the ISO 20000 foundation class, at least, can actually give you that uh, information. Yeah, and let me throw one other thing in there, Troy, because that's a great analogy. So... It actually makes a distinction between the the version that was approved in 2005 and the version that is we expect to be released uh, here in the spring in 2011. In 2005, if you look at the the code itself, it speaks to the fact that um, what what they're focused on are defining the requirements 
that a service provider must have in order to deliver managed services to their customers. So it's it's like as you describe, it's the code, it's the um, it's sort of the Bible, if you will, with respect to um, what are all the the processes and management activities that are needed in order to assure that you deliver services to the customer. What's interesting about the 2011 version is that there's this introduction of something brand new, and it's called a service management system. And it was spoken to briefly in 2005, although it really was more of a management system. And now the the idea is, is that it's a comprehensive, integrated view of how you're going to manage and deliver services. And so um, it takes a more holistic, um, system-like perspective around the whole notion of these management activities and, and individual processes. So to extend your analogy, it take, it's what it's doing is it's taking the code and then you're dropping that code into, say, an electrical engineering company that has in and of itself a developed their own internal practice to assure that all of the elements of the code are integrated into the work practices, both the design as well as the uh, on the engineering side, as well as if in the case of um, working with architects or actually working with the contractors as they're doing the installation, making sure that all elements of that code are properly understood um, and that they're uh, integrated and implemented in the most appropriate fashion. So it's really just taking the code and taking it one step up. So that's a big difference between 2005 and 2011. You mentioned the word services a lot. Um defining and, and when, when you're talking about ISO 20,000. Does ISO 20,000 at any of the levels ever help you? Because I know one of the things that Troy and I talk about, and I've heard a lot of practitioners speak about, is understanding your services and mapping them and, and then the dependencies and whatnot. But one of the things we just experienced at the Pink 11 conference was that in, in one of the panels, some of the people just had trouble defining the word services. Mm. Does it get any more robust or, or does it help you understand that word? Or is it, again, or is it just the fact that we like using that word without really ever coming to terms with it? So, so one of the changes that occurred between 2005 and 2011 was the introduction of um, uh, some additional definitions. So we've added uh, uh, 37, there's a total of 37 definitions now in the 2011 version. One of the definitions that was added was what's a definition of a service. No way. Yep, it's in there. So is it different than idle? The definition of a service <laughs> is exactly as you will find in the in the idle text. Okay. So as as we understand what a service is, you know, and that ability that you can deliver um, value to the to your customer by facilitating the outcomes that the customer wants to achieve without incurring the cost and the risk. That definition is in the standard. And so all elements spring from, just as it does in idle, all elements of the standard springs from the basic definition of a service. Very cool. Yeah, but you're right, Chris. There's a lot of confusion about services and what is a service and how do you define them. Even with that base definition, it, it lends itself to a lot of interpretation. Yeah, I mean, after the pink conference, there are blogs all over the place now springing up going, I learned that no one knows what a service is. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, see, and that's and that's the the misunderstanding of the service. I think that new service definition is is incredibly powerful because it ties very clearly from a service provider to their customer. You can tie exactly 
into what it is that you do and, and how is it that you bring together all those elements that, that, that you will and you describe within this term, term of the service and it's all based on what it does for the customer. And that is the key linkage. And um, when we go out into the field and we're working with our customers and our clients to help them understand what services are, that is the, that's the sweet spot. That's where we go for to help us understand uh, what services are all about. As a matter of fact, there's a white paper out there on the pink website called Anatomy of a Service. So if people want a little better uh, information about how to identify and define services, they might want to pull that one down. Yeah, that's a great paper. Put a link to that in the show notes. So this has been an amazing, and we, we're going to have to run over. I'm sorry, we usually cut it at this point, but we have to go over. There's too much left on set. So you talked about the sweet spot, and I heard you mention earlier a foundations class. When you're looking at classes, whether you're being an auditor or someone looking to become a, a, I think you refer to the other classes as a consultant. You'll correct me as soon as I let you answer. Is there a difference in whether your class is based on 2005 or 2011? And is 2011 even out yet? So 2011 hasn't been released. So all classes will be based on 2005. Right. Um, part one, uh, which are the um, the specifications for um, the standard, they will be released. Um, you know, what we're expecting is sometime in the spring. If I had to put my best guess on it, it will probably be in April. It's in the hands of the ISO editors now. And they're doing their magic to transform uh, the standard from the copy that we as the working group approved uh, last fall. Um, they're working to put that into the final format so it can be published and uh, made available through, uh, through the ISO website. So all classes today are based on 2005. I suspect that it won't be too long before organizations will start to stand up the new class is based on 2011, um, and that, that will happen as soon as uh, uh, the standard is published. I'm a geek at heart, and I like the newest of the new of the newest of the new. So my question to you is something that probably training organizations might not like, but wouldn't it just make sense for me to wait before I took training? Um, I guess it really depends on what your objective is. Good, 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 good. Um, there has been some changes with respect to, to the standards, so there's... Um, there's some additional clarity um, around some of the, the terms. Um, there's a little tighter alignment um, in 2011 compared to 2005 uh, to idle. So as an example, when you look at incident and problem management, um, you see um, a closer alignment to the activity flows as described in, in the idle text. Um, they've added the process service request as part of uh, incident management. Um, they've expanded the definition of uh, release to include release and deployment. So depending on what your objective is, if your objective is to just kind of understand the basics of, of ISO, you could take the, the current classes and feel comfortable that you'll probably get about 90% of, of what you need to understand relative to the new standard when it comes out. But if you really are focused on wanting to help your organization be certified, you're going to stand up the plan that's going to move the organization from where you are today to the point where you could be certified. And by the way, in order to be certified, you have to be certified for all elements of the standard. You can't pick and choose. You have to be certified across all parts, all clauses of part one. 
Um, then I would say probably wait until uh, the new classes come out. Troy, I hate to say this, but I think we need a part two. Well, we could, that could be arranged. Because we didn't even get to talk about auditors or the class in, in great detail or how long it is or the benef- benefit or the complementary connections. I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff people got out of this. I just don't think we can do it in one. Jack, would you want to come back? Sure. Bring me back. Chris promised donuts, so what the heck? Donuts are powerful. <laughs> It's really, it's, I, I know I'm a youngin at 42, but every morning I get up, I always think to myself that that commercial from the 80s or the 90s, time to make the donuts. Um, <laughs> it, it never leaves my head. I don't know why. It's just always there. So very powerful marketing. Ah, uh, yes. The virtual donut, Chris. Yes. So, um, Jack, thank you so much for being on the show. I mean. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for asking me, guys. Just like Troy, you've been a, a real uh, powerful figure in the community for so long. And I, I still sometimes have to think, my gosh, I work with these people. Um, so thank you. Thank you. It's very humbling to be with you. Troy, you're mine next week. So are you ready? Do you know what we're going to tackle? I believe we're going to tackle service catalog. I think it's time to hit the service question. No! Yeah, it's time to go there. Okay, you heard it, kids. You heard it right from Troy. Next uh, episode, Lucky 7, will be about the service catalog. Hey, this is Chris Dancy with Practitioner Radio. Thank you for listening. Uh, I'm here with my favorite host, Mr. Troy Dumoulin. And today's special guest, Mr. Jack Probst. Okay, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks. Bye. Take care, Chris. 